Thanks for listening to the Thyroid Fixer podcast with your host, me, Dr. Amy Horniman, AKA the Thyroid Fixer. Also functional medicine practitioner, hormone and weight loss expert. We're talking all things thyroid, hormone, and health related in order to empower, educate, and transform you. Remember, I fix your thyroid, I fix your hormones, I fix your life. So let's get started. One of my favorite topics, one of my favorite things to podcast about is about you, your questions, your answers. So I love going to my community of thyroid patients, of thyroid sufferers, of thyroid conquerors, thyroid warriors, and asking you what you want to learn about. So that's what I did. I went into the community and grabbed your questions, and that's what we are going to be going over today. So this is going to be a wide range, everything from thyroid to hormones, to doctors, to red light therapy. We're going to cover it all. But these are your questions. So thank you so much for your love, support, for listening, and for chiming in, because I want to know what you want to know. We're just going to jump right in here. The very first question, I'm going in a row, right? I'm just going down the, down the list, down the list of your questions, and we are going to get to all of them. So the very first question I love, because this kind of just leads us off, right? In your opinion, why are most doctors so miseducated on the thyroid? Now, granted, this is a question that if I had the true answer to, I'd be a millionaire. Uh, this is my guess based on experience. I believe in, and even from talking to some of my conventional colleagues, conventionally trained colleagues, I believe that it starts in med school with what they learn. So let me back up. Years and years ago, I gave a talk to the integrative wellness physicians here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Great group of practitioners. And they actually, we in little Podunk Erie have an integrative wellness center. And these are docs that do PRP therapy, stem cell therapy. Uh, they really focus in on you know, the pain management on some alternative therapies, but they didn't really focus on thyroid and hormones. So I talked to one of the lead docs, he brought me in to do a talk. And we talked about basically, like, number one, why aren't you testing everything? Why aren't you testing the free T3? Why aren't you testing the reverse T3? These are really important tests. And I kind of went through what reverse T3 tells us and the importance of free T3, because that's your active thyroid hormone. And then we went to the Synthroid box. And I started talking about why are all of you in the Synthroid box, meaning you prescribe only T4, only Synthroid. I said, if you had a patient that needed an antidepressant and you start them on an antidepressant and that doesn't work, you do another one. If that one doesn't work, oh, we're going to add on to it. So we'll add on an antipsychotic and an anti-anxiety and we'll pair this one up with that one. I go, um, there's more than one thyroid medication out there. Why don't you think outside of the Synthroid box? And the one doc raises his hand and says, that's all we've learned. So that really is my partial answer to that question is that is what they learn in med school. Now, that being said, that does not let them off the hook to not expand their training, right? So we're always learning. 
we are always learning and a good practitioner will continuously be learning. As a conventionally trained doctor, I have respect for those who have gone into the functional space, who have learned more than what they learned in med school, who have realized that the day they left med school, half of what they learned is going to be obsolete in two to three years. So there's that. And in two to three years, there will be 50% more new things to learn and new advancements in medicine and technology. So they have to continue learning. So if you are working with a conventional medicine doctor who does not know the thyroid, it's kind of training, kind of what they learned and did not learn in med school. And it's kind of on them for not expanding their own knowledge base and not continuing to learn and not wanting to treat their patients the best way they know how, like with top of the line treatment, outside of the box treatment. Realistically, what I do with the thyroid is not that out of the box. It's pretty much, I always say, biologically makes sense. I always ask the question, does it biologically make sense? So like when we're talking about total thyroidectomy patients, I did a special episode just for you guys, my PT, my TT, RAI. Does it biologically make sense to give you T4 only when we remove the gland that produced T4 and T3 and the main conversion gland of T4 to T3? Does it biologically make sense? No, <laughs> the answer is no, it doesn't. So that question needs to be, posed in each situation and conventional doctors need to ask that question instead of just going through the list of standard of care, check the box. Yeah, we tested that. Yep. I gave my patient T4 check. Oh, and a, and a couple band-aids, antidepressant check, sleeping medication check, statin check. So it really is about, it's, it's kind of on them to get outside of that box and learn more. Great question. Great, great question. Okay, next one. What is your opinion on protein sparing modified fasting, which usually means low calorie, 800 to 900 a day, when trying to heal one's metabolism and lose weight? So protein sparing modified fasting is okay when done a couple of days a week. It's not something that I would say to implement ongoing. I have had a couple of patients come to me who went to the Cleveland Clinic and they were told to go on the protein sparing modified fast diet, lowering their calorie intake to 800, 900 a day, which then shuts down their metabolism. That's the problem. That's the main problem with low, low calorie diets is that we see it eventually slow down the metabolism. Because you have to remember our bodies are super smart. I always say your body is smarter than you are. So you can try all these things to trick your body, but your body's going to win in the end because it knows. So when you drop your calories low, and, and this is one thing that we can hold on to from the 80s and 90s, right? We want to let go of the eat every two hours to keep your metabolism up. That is false. But we can hold on to that starvation theory because that still applies. So if you drop your, your calories too low, 
your body does go into a starvation mode, meaning it thinks that you're starving, especially if if it's for long periods. Like I said, if you do this for a day or two, not a problem. Same thing as fasting. Let's say you decide to do a two or three day fast, true water fast. Could you do it and drop your metabolism? You could do it without dropping your metabolism because it's only a couple days and there's a big difference between fasting and starving. When we are fasting, our bodies know that we're not starving because eventually, whether it's two days, three days, or five days later, we give it an abundance of calories. And the body goes, okay, all right, all right, we're not in a famine, we're good, we're good here. If this goes on for a long period of time, low calories from an extended period of time, your body will shut down your metabolism. So it's actually better to do a zero calorie water fast, maybe a little bit of bone broth or electrolytes and salt than it is to do low calorie ongoing. Because again, going back to the body is smart. The body knows when you're fasting and what it will do is it will you know, slow down metabolism temporarily, but that's okay. You're not eating. There's nothing to burn anyways. And it allows the body to heal and rebuild and repair, lower insulin, improve insulin sensitivity, heal the gut because you're not digesting all the time. But when you give it just that little bit of calories, 800, 900 calories, that's enough to say, hey, there's food present, just not enough. So you're probably going to be kind of in like this depression era starvation mode for a while, don't know how long. Hmm. Okay, better hold on to everything in the body for dear life. Hold on to that fat. Hold on to it and don't burn it because you might need it for later because there's a famine happening right now. So the body will literally hold on to your fat sores for fuel. And that's why you'll hear people say, oh my God, I did a low carb. I did HCG. Yeah, I lost a little bit of weight, but then it all came back. Well, yeah, because you're doing 500 calories a day. So you shut down your metabolism. Yeah, you burned a little bit during, but as soon as food came back in the picture, oh, it was a party. It's a party for the body. And the body is just going to take that and store it and take the food and store it. That's why everyone gains weight after the HCG diet because it's too low calorie. Now at KetoCon this year, July, if anyone's in the Austin area, you got to come see me. I'm going to be speaking on healing Hashimoto's with keto. And one of the naysayers of keto, the Karens of keto, say, well, when you do keto, you're in a low caloric state, huge question mark, low caloric state, so therefore you lower your metabolism. Okay, if you really were in a low caloric state, you could lower your metabolism. That's coming back to the protein sparing modified fasting of 800, 900 calories a day. I don't know about you, but I have never done a high fat, low carb, moderate protein diet and been low calorie. I've never been starving. When you add in the fat and you actually do keto the right way, you are never in a low caloric state. So I'm going to bust all of those myths at KetoCon. I kind of diverted a little bit there, but definitely come see me if you're in Austin or if you want a trip. I mean, top of the line speakers are going to be there, people. Top of the line. Ben Azadi is going to be there. Cynthia Thurlow. I think Cynthia is going to be there. 
Anna Kabeka, Danny Pompa, Danny Vega, so many people. So got to come see me. So that is my answer to the protein sparing modified fast question. Next one, what in the world is biohacking and why am I starting to hear so much of it in the functional medicine space? Biohacking, you know, and I should have looked up me, I'll look up an actual def for you here. Um, biohacking is kind of our way to say how to implement things to biologically hack your body. So here we go. Biohacking, also known as DIY biology, kind of like HGTV, right? Do-it-yourself biology, extremely broad and amorphous term that can cover a huge range of activities. Biohacking is the application of the hacker ethic in pursuit of enhancement or change to the body's functions through technological means, such as DIY cybernetic devices or introducing biochemicals. So this would be, you know, people that are using the tracker, using the, like the order ring, using different devices, even the keto mojo is a form of biohacking. And one question that we have later on that we're definitely going to tie into this is the benefits of infrared sauna and red light therapy. So that would be all under the biohacking umbrella, you know, cold therapy, Wim Hof methods, hot yoga, infrared sauna, red light therapy, you know, tracking your, your body's biometrics. And then we can kind of get, there's a little space in the biohacking world where people become orthorexic, meaning they become so focused on the numbers, on the feedback that they're getting from these devices that they literally let the devices run them. Meaning if you wear an aura ring, and this is one reason why I don't have one yet, but I, I will get one eventually. You wear an aura ring and you wake up the next day and it said, well, you had a restless night of sleep. And you go, oh, well, wait a minute. Um, I feel okay. Oh, maybe I don't feel okay because I had a restless night of sleep. So you literally start to believe what your device tells you. And then the same thing is the opposite. So if you have a great night's sleep and you're like, you wake up, you're like, oh, man, not wake up today, but I had a great night's sleep. So then you start questioning the device, start screwing with your head. So we don't want to become orthorexic, but biohacking is great. There's so many different benefits to it. So kind of moving into the question of the benefits of infrared sauna and red light therapy, they're huge. Infrared saunas help the process of detoxification. They help relaxation. They help sore muscles. I always say if you have high sex hormone binding globulin, do an infrared sauna, do hot yoga with the infrared heat lights, you know, get in front of that and sweat because that process of sweating, you're releasing toxins from the body. Now you want to shower right after because you don't want those to reabsorb. So infrared sauna, hot yoga, you're getting, you're kind of kicking up the liver's detoxification processes. Now remember that all hormones are processed in the liver. They're methylated in the liver. So we want the liver working. We want those detoxification pathways open and on point so that you can properly detox your body. Okay, red light therapy, so much, so much on red light therapy. 
Um, so red light therapy actually originated when NASA began experimenting with red light therapy on plant growth in space and to help heal wounds in astronauts. So one of the big things that red light therapy does is stimulate collagen and actually help to heal wounds faster. So when I do my Wolverine stack of peptides to heal, red light therapy is part of that. And I've also talked about using the GHKCU serum on my face and then going in front of the red light for usually like a couple minutes. It really only takes about 45 seconds to really start to stimulate the collagen production, but I go on, you know, I sit in front of it for a couple of minutes. And if you have things like, or conditions like skin cancer, psoriasis, acne, it's also used to treat that as well. So red light therapy is thought to work by acting on the power plant in your body's cells called mitochondria. And we've talked about mitochondria in relationship to the thyroid on here as well, because the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. With more energy, other cells can do their work more efficiently, such as repairing skin, boosting new cell growth, and enhancing skin rejuvenation. More specifically, certain cells absorb light wavelengths and are stimulated to work. So when we're talking skin health, this is stimulating collagen production. Collagen gives the skin its structure, strength, and elasticity. It increases fibroblast production, which makes collagen. So a whole lot of skin repair, wound repair, collagen building, wrinkle reduction. It increases blood circulation to the tissue, and it reduces inflammation in the cells. And I will tell you that it definitely helps with pain. So my back was killing me earlier today, killing me. And I sat in front of my red light for 10 minutes, just on my back, on the spot that it hurts. And it's definitely better. I did not have to take Tylenol, ibuprofen, nothing. Muscle relaxer, zero. It definitely helps. The other common skin conditions that red light is good for, we talked about wound healing, stretch marks reducing wrinkles, fine lines, and age spots, you know, those little brown spots that you get all over your face from too much sun. It improves facial texture. So, you know, when you start to get kind of creepy as you age, like you get in the mirror and you're like, why do I have this like cross hatching of creepy wrinkles on my face? Facial texture. It improves psoriasis, rosacea, and eczema, improves scars, improves sun-damaged skin, improves hair growth in people with androgenic alopecia, and it improves acne. So lots and lots of good stuff with red light therapy and infrared saunas, infrared light, infrared heat. There's also something else with, and I got this question earlier today from a patient. There's also something else with infrared saunas that we have to remember. It's the heat stress. So you probably heard of cold plunges, you know, ice baths, Wim Hof method of doing that really super cold shower. You start with 30 seconds and you go up to 60 seconds and you work your way up to three minutes of a cold shower. There's the heat stress as well. So not only do you get the detoxification benefits, but you also get the improved metabolism from the heat stress of the infrared sauna. Because when you're doing hot yoga, when you're doing an infrared sauna, you're literally heating your body. I always say from the inside out, because it doesn't feel, even though you're sweating, and believe me, I hate the heat. Do not put me outside above 75. I will bitch all day long. I cannot stand it. I hate summer. I know everyone's going to be, you hate summer? I hate summer. So you'll never see me in the South. 
I will always live in the North and I hate summer. My AC will be on, but I don't mind sweating and hot yoga. I don't mind an infrared sauna because it feels like it's deep heating me from the inside out. My muscles get warm and then my skin gets warm to the touch and yes, I am sweating, but it's not that uncomfortable sweat. It's not that sweat where you're like, my God, mom, will you please turn the AC or on because it's 80 degrees in here? You know, when you're at like your parents' house and you're like, seriously, like, are you, you're cold and it's 80? It's not that kind of uncomfortable heat. In fact, it's probably around 100 degrees in an infrared sauna, maybe more. 100 degrees at hot yoga, maybe more. But it's not that uncomfortable, unbearable, disgusting heat. It's different. So your body responds to that heat stress by increasing your metabolism. So that's a bonus, huge bonus. All right, moving along. In your opinion, why do some doctors do free T3 and T4 along with TSH? And that's it. Well, you're lucky if you get free T3, honestly. Also, there seems to be a wide variety of ways to treat thyroid and yet the patient is left to do a lot of research, get the point across that we don't feel well. Right. So if you're lucky, your doctor will do free T3. Chances are you're getting TSH and T4. That is it. I just had a patient today that never had her antibodies tested. Mom has autoimmune, never had antibodies tested. So there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of not testing going on out there. And there's no way we can get the full picture of your thyroid without testing. So what do I always say? If a doctor won't do thorough testing, you get a full picture of what's going on with you, get a new doctor. So if you're really struggling with this and you're having to convince your doctor to run tests that are going to give you that whole picture of your health, do you really think that after they get those tests back, they're going to know what the hell to do? No, no, they're not. So the question, why do they? Why do they only test certain ones and not others? Number one, they don't know what to do with the results when they come back. They have no clue what reverse T3 means outside of a clinical setting of, again, you having high reverse T3 because you're laying, trying to survive in the ICU or the ER. They have no idea what a low normal free T3 means. You're, but you're a 2.4. You're WNL within normal limits. But doc, I feel like ass and I can't lose weight. I'm, I keep gaining. I'm tired all the time. My hair's falling out and I'm constipated. But your WNL, you're within normal limits. They don't know what to do with that. They have no clue how to treat the thyroid. And then we can trickle that into the sex hormones, which is our next question. They just don't know. So the why, again, million dollar question if I had the answer to it. But the bottom line is, if you're getting that answer back, if you have to do the research and get your point across that you don't feel well, find a new doctor. Come see me. I'll work with you. You don't ever have to convince me to do thorough testing. That's part of the entry, entry pathway to working with me. We get thorough testing. We have to see the full picture. If we don't see the full picture, how am I going to help you? How is your doctor going to help you if you don't have that full picture right in front of you? And I love full, I, I just love putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Again, I had a patient this morning, new patient, and we're like, it's like a Zen diagram. We're connecting dots. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, if we go here and we look back, you can see 
that at this point in time, it was this. And at this point in time, it was that. That totally makes sense because you were pregnant back here. And these were those numbers. And then it went down. And then look at your thyroid. And this is when you were on this medication. And it's about putting that whole puzzle together. That's what your doctor should be doing. So you should easily have thorough testing. And if you don't, start walking. Start walking. Moving on to hormones. On bioidentical hormones, if you start and feel better, so bioidentical hormones, by the way, let me clarify, are not synthetic hormones. They're not birth control. They're not the estrogen and progesterone that was used by the Women's Health Initiative where they said, hormones cause cancer. Not the same. Bioidentical is exactly that. Biologically identical to the hormones that your own body makes. So bioidentical hormones, if you start to feel better, obtain optimal levels, how do you get off them? My question to you would be, if we start to do anything, whether it's thyroid hormone, testosterone, progesterone, and you feel better, why would you stop? Why would you take away the one thing that makes you feel better, right? You are going to have to pry the T3, progesterone, and testosterone out of my dead, cold hands before I ever stopped it. It's not happening. It's not how I don't need estrogen yet. I still celebrate every month that I get my cycle. But when I need it, I'm going to take it. And you're going to have to pry that out of my hands too. Dead, cold hands. So if you're actually doing something that replaces hormones that are no longer being properly made by your body, why would you stop it? So I get that question a lot with supplements too. Now, granted, there are some supplements that we're using for a short period of time to address this, to address that, whatever. But yeah, you're going to have to take vitamin D the rest of your life or it's going in the toilet. Yeah, if you're insulin resistant, you might want to take berberine, my blood sugar fixer. Why not? It's keeping your insulin low. That's anti-aging right there. That's going to help you to not age, prevent cancer, prevent Alzheimer's, prevent weight gain related to age. Why wouldn't you do that? Iron. If you're anemic and you tend toward anemia, you're going to take iron, get your levels up, make sure they don't go too high. You might need it ongoing. Don't know. Have to test. That's part of that testing thing to really get the full picture. But you might need it. And if it's making you feel good, then why not? And in fact, like, let me retract. There are some practitioners that do rhythmic dosing of bioidentical hormones, meaning they bring you back to a 30, 35-year-old state where you're having your period at the age of 80. Now, some of you go, I don't want to do that. I'm so happy my period's gone. But when we rhythmic dose, and I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. I'm not there yet to make the decision. Right now, I'm using static dosing because that's all I need for testosterone and progesterone. Maybe once I get to the pure, full-blown menopausal state, I'll be like, please bring me back to 35. But that actually is good for the body to shed the uterine lining, to have a cycle every single month. It sets you back to youth. Now that requires higher levels of estrogen. Not a lot of people can tolerate that if they tend toward estrogen dominance. But that is just kind of an example for you. And I'm going to have an expert on talking about rhythmic dosing too. That's an example for you about of how we do want you to stay at 
a younger time frame, in a younger time frame of hormones. I want you to have youthful hormones. So even if we don't have you having a cycle every single month, we still want you having that dose of hormones that brings back some youth, that brings back the motivation, the strength, the GSD hormone, the get shit done hormone, that's testosterone. So whether we use my hormone fixer, whether we use testosterone injections, you know how I feel about pellets. I hate them. They raise you too high. They drop you too low. You're on a roller coaster. I've literally seen one out of 20 women say, I love my pellets. Everybody else is like, yeah, they suck. Like I go to 350 with testosterone, then I break out, and then I drop to 20 right before my pellets are ready. Use my hormone fixer, which we're already getting insane, in, insane reviews on. I mean, people are stronger. They're feeling better. Their energy's up like two weeks into using it. It's crazy. Sold out again last week, got a new shipment in. Thank you for your patience. Literally freaking flying off the shelves. Use that. Use test injections. Some of you like cream. Cream is iffy though when it comes to testosterone. Sometimes it really depends on the thickness of your skin, whether you absorb it or not. There are some people that do fine on cream. We'll see their test level go up and it stays nice and steady. Other people, I've seen the cream used for like, three to five months, and their test level goes from a 23 to a 25. Doesn't move at all. Not even anywhere near optimal of 50. So with that, some of pair of the hormone fixer up with the cream. If we have someone that isn't doing great on the cream, it doesn't want to do in the injectable, don't want to do pellets. So we can do that, or we can use the injections. There are many different ways to, to increase testosterone. And then progesterone, that's really simple. Even at a static dose, 100 to 200 milligrams per night, most of you can tolerate the oral. And I like the oral form of progesterone because it's converted to allopregnenolone in the liver. And that's what gives us that more calming feeling in our brain. And pregnenolone is very neuroprotective. Why I always test pregnenolone, because I want to know the level of neuroprotective hormone you have. And pregnenolone is also tied to the adrenals. So when your body needs cortisol, if you have a low adrenal function, there's something called pregnenolone steal, where the adrenals will steal pregnenolone to make cortisol because you need cortisol to survive. So that's why I want adequate levels of pregnenolone. That's why I like oral progesterone. Now, some of you say, oh my gosh, oral progesterone makes me too tired, can't wake up in the morning. That's fine. We can use a cream. We can even use injectable. That's not really commonplace, but I do have a couple of practitioners using injectable and even injectable estrogen. And then estradiol should not be oral. It should be cream or patch. So when we're figuring out those levels and we have you feeling better, I want you to stay there. Ultimately, I want you to stay there. Best strategy for eating clean when traveling. Okay, so I have traveled a ton. What I will do is right before I leave, I will always make a batch of something, whether it's my like keto cookies, keto pancakes. I will make a batch of something so I can take it with me on the plane, snacking, whatever. And that way I'm not tempted to grab, because I don't know about you, I always get hungry when I'm traveling. And I don't know if that's because of the bad night's sleep that you always get before you travel, waking up early to get on a plane, don't know. But 
I always get hungry when I travel. It could be boredom as well. So when I travel, I make sure that I'm loaded down with the good food. Then if I'm at the airport and I have to eat, I will grab a bag of beef jerky. I'll grab some dark chocolate or I will look for a place where I can actually get halfway decent food. So just last month I was traveling. They had a Chili's. It was like a Chili's Express. So I stopped and I got a halfway decent chicken Caesar salad. It wasn't the best in the world, but it was decent. And then just depending on, you know, what airport you're in will depend on what you can grab. I always look for a Starbucks, whether I'm on the road or flying, because I can grab the egg white bites, the egg bites. They have that bacon and gruyere and red pepper. And oh my God, they're so good. But you're getting the protein. Yeah, it's a little bit of dairy. So for those of you who are avoiding dairy, you can't do this. But it's, it's definitely protein. It's low carb. So that's a great way to eat on the run and get satisfied where you're not grabbing some five-day-old chicken breaded sandwich from Wendy's and wondering why in the hell you even bother doing that because it didn't taste good. So yeah, that's, that's what I would do is pack your own. And you know, I mean, it's so easy to eat on the road. So this applies whether you're traveling or whether you're just going out to eat. My God, anywhere you go, you can get a burger without the bun. You can get a big ass salad. You can get a steak. You can get fish. You can get salmon. You could get a piece of chicken, but I really kind of can't stand chicken anymore these days. I ate it too much while competing. There's so much that you can get out these days that come into the realm of paleo, of keto, of clean eating, that you don't have to be sucked in to eating breaded fried food, bar food. I'm sorry, even if you're at a bar, ask for the wings. Like, let, let me see some not breaded wings. Yeah, I know they might not be keto because you're getting some kind of barbecue dressing. Who cares? It's better than the fried chicken sandwich, right? Okay. And this question goes to the podcast that I posted last week, controversial topic, food sensitivities or BS. Food sensitivity testing is there a particular test anybody can recommend? Super good question. Super good. So no, food sensitivity testing is in general pretty bunk. And here's why. You can go back and listen to that episode, but I'll summarize. So a colleague of mine had the means to do this where he tested his family and a few of his patients with food sensitivity testing every single day for two weeks. Every test came back different every day. There was zero consistency, none, 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 zero, zero, zip, zilch, zero consistency, which proved that this food sensitivity thing is bunk. And personally, I tell the story in this episode as well. I had a patient who came in, oh my gosh, he was like, what the hell do I eat? Look at this test, Cleveland Clinic again, Cleveland Clinic gave him this test and every marker was positive. I mean, he was supposedly sensitive to everything. And then we repeated it. It came back. He was sensitive to nothing. I mean, two completely different tests on the same person done a month apart. You can't eliminate that much food to come back as, oh, you're fine on everything that you just tested positive for last month. Can't be done. So that proved to me personally, I know N equals one, 
But that was enough to show me that food sensitivities are complete BS. Total bunk, total bunk, total, total bunk. Don't do it. All right, last question about blood sugar. How do I know if I am insulin resistant and what do I do about it? Beautiful, beautiful ending, beautiful ending. Because insulin resistance ties back so closely to hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's, I've told you guys before, I see at least, I mean, 90, I'm going to go nine, 99% of my patients with hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's have insulin resistance, have insulin resistance. So what do we do? We look at, first of all, glucose. Now, glucose you will find on a comprehensive metabolic panel, the first little marker that comes up top. You should be doing your labs in a fasted state always. Don't ever ask, should I do these fasted? The answer is yes, you should. Always, always do your labs in a fasted state, no coffee. Wake up, drag your ass to the lab. Do not take your thyroid medication. Do not drink coffee. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. So go to the lab, get your blood drawn. I know you're all tired. You're like, ah, please just take my blood. And then get in your car and take your medication and then wait an hour and go get some coffee or grab your coffee because you need to wake up, wait an hour and take your medication. So you're only missing the dose beforehand, by the way. There's a little Q&A answer on labs and how to take your meds. So back to insulin resistance, we look at glucose. Now, glucose can lie. Maybe you got a bad night's sleep the night before. Maybe you have the cortisol awakening response like I do where my cortisol goes up in the morning, thus my glucose will go up in the morning. I'm not insulin resistant because I take berberine. So, but if I went by my glucose number, I'd be freaking out, you know, 100, 105 in the morning, but glucose can lie. We can't stop there. Then we have to go on to A1C. Now, A1C, I like between 4.8 and 5.1. Anything about that, I don't care what the standard lab value range says. 4.8 to 5.1. That's your optimal range for A1C. But I have also had patients who are very, very, very insulin resistant that still come in at a 5.1. Why? Because they are reactive hypoglycemic, meaning their blood sugar is spiking high and then dropping low. And spiking high and dropping low. And those lows, remember A1C is a three-month snapshot of what your glucose has been doing. So if you have been relatively low, like if you've had those really deep, deep lows and really high highs, they're going to equal out to a pretty basic midline. So you might come back at a 5.1 or 5.2 because the lows are canceling out the highs. It's a decent snapshot because listen, if you're coming back at a 5.6, 5.7, 6, 7, you're diabetic. You're very insulin resistant slash diabetic. Now we go on to insulin. That's my favorite marker. Insulin better be below a six. If it is above a six, you are insulin resistant. So I had a patient, glucose was uh, maybe 88. A1C was a 5.2. Insulin was an 18. She was very insulin resistant. She was reactive hypoglycemic. Then I asked the question, can you go longer than like three hours without eating? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Nope. 
I get I get hangry, I get lightheaded, I start to shake. That is insulin resistance. That is your body throwing you on this roller coaster of highs and lows. That's why your A1C came back pretty, pretty, you know? I mean, really decent looking. And then there's the insulin. So when we implement the use of berberine, which has so many studies, so, so, so many beneficial studies, berberine and weight loss, berberine and insulin resistance, berberine and neurological diseases, because when you lower insulin, hello, you lower inflammation, you improve the brain. So you lower the risk of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, berberine, and cancer as a metabolic disease. So high insulin levels leads to aging, leads to cancer. Berberine helps with that. Many studies and even berberine and metformin together are a double punch to those with full-blown type 2 diabetes. So I always refer back to that case study that myself and my colleague wrote and published. I just find it fascinating because I was even surprised by this guy's results. So we used berberine. He was on metformin. We implemented berberine and a low-carbohydrate diet, and we got him off. He was insulin-dependent diabetic. I mean, blood sugars of 600 people. I'm talking I want your glucose at like 95. This was a blood sugar of 600. Blood sugar 600, came out of the hospital, insulin dependent, forget it. I'm like, you got to give me time. We can do this, but you got to give me time. Six weeks, he was off his insulin. Six months, his diabetes was reversed. 13.9 A1C. Remember, I'm telling you I went to a 4.8 to 5.1. He had a 13.9, went down to a 5.4. So totally reversed his diabetes. Totally, totally probably even lower than that by now, but that was just in six months. Berberine, powerful, powerful. So blood sugar fixer, my blood sugar fixer, I would implement the therapeutic dose of berberine for insulin resistance, weight loss, balancing glucose, reversing diabetes is 1200 milligrams. So most berberine products are 400. You have to take three a day. That can be a pain in the butt. So that's why I did 600 milligrams in my berberine. So you don't take two a day. So take it, take one before, usually main meals. Okay. So if you're eating a huge breakfast and a huge dinner, take it before breakfast, take it before dinner. If you're more of a, I don't eat in the morning, I eat lunch and dinner, take it before lunch, take it before dinner. Now, berberine can cause some loose stools, it can cause a little bit of nausea in maybe 10% of the population. So if you've ever tried metformin, you're like, I can't do metformin. 30% of the population gets hit hard GI wise with metformin. Usually you just have to kind of suck it up and get used to it. it. Takes about two weeks. Some people though, they cannot level out. They cannot tolerate metformin. So we use berberine. We can use it together or we can use it alone. And 10% will still get a little bit of the GI effect, but that's also an indicator that your GI needs some love because berberine is part of a gut healing protocol. So if you are getting some of those loose stools or nausea, keep going with it. Maybe throw in digestive enzymes, talk to your practitioner about it. You might have to do a GI map, but your gut just needs a little bit of love. So if you stick with it, it will be worth it in the end. 
So you can always find in the show notes to my podcast, you can always find the links to get the blood sugar fixer or the hormone fixer that we talked about. You can go to my website, dramyhorneman.com and just go to the shop. That's where everything is. So hopefully that helps with all, all, all of your questions. So keep keep sending things to me, honestly. Keep sending them, keep asking the questions, keep giving me your ideas for podcasts because this is for you. This is not for me. This is for you. I wanna know what you want to learn. So I thank you for listening. I thank you for submitting everything. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you loved it. And as always, if you would be so kind to leave a review, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, that would be absolutely amazing. I read all of them. Also, anything that you hear on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any kind of medical condition. So we always recommend that you check with your medical provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner before implementing anything that you hear on this podcast. And if you want to find out more about working together, you can click the link below in the show notes to book a discovery call. And there you'll be talking to a member of my team. They are an extension of me. They are amazing. And you and I will talk after that once we get you all signed up and you and I get to work together. All right. I hope to see you soon.